This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Status Epilepticus by Dr. Sally Vitale. Please note that in this video we will be following the guidelines used at Boston Children's Hospital. Some of this information may need to be modified based on the equipment, guidelines, and practices in place in your institution. In this video we will be discussing status epilepticus and attempt to answer the following questions. When does a single seizure or a cluster of seizures become what we call status epilepticus? And why does a particular time course matter? And what's the evidence that seizures uh, in the absence of hypoxia or acidosis can cause damage to the brain or other parts of the body? And do some types of seizure cause more damage than others? Is the generalized tonic-clonic status epilepticus more uh, injurious to the brain than having a you know, simple partial status where consciousness is maintained but a patient is clearly uh, going on to seize for longer than usual? And do certain types of seizure uh, cause more damage than others? Uh, and what drugs and doses are likely to be effective at what points during a seizure? And what's the mechanism behind the changing efficacy of the different drugs that we use? Definition and epidemiology. So status epilepticus used to be thought of as a seizure that persisted for a sufficient length of time or repeated frequently enough that there was not recovery of consciousness between the attacks. But obviously that definition doesn't provide enough information to clinicians about uh, when a seizure should be treated, when is, when, how long is too long. And so uh, in the, you know, from the 1970s to 1980s, it was really thought that 30 minutes was really a, uh, an amount of time that someone could seize and there would, would not be significant long-term morbidity or mortality, but that beyond 30 minutes of continuous seizure, uh, there was a significant association with, uh, with morbidity and mortality. And so uh, we'll talk more about what happens to the brain after 30 minutes of seizure, but that was where the initial 30-minute uh, time frame came from. But the interesting thing is that you know seizures that persist even five minutes are extremely rare. The vast majority of people in the world who have epilepsy have seizures that are under a minute long. Uh, and they may seize many, many times a day, but actually many of them may never have an episode of status epilepticus. So every seizure that they have gets stopped relatively quickly. So for a seizure to go on even longer than five minutes is extremely rare. And we also know that the benzodiazepines, which we'll talk more about in a minute, are far more efficacious early on in a seizure than they are late in a seizure. So the International League Against Epilepsy, uh, a group of people who got together back in 1989, uh, gave the definition that a status epilepticus was either continuous seizures lasting five minutes or two or more discrete seizures between which there is incomplete recovery of consciousness. Uh, and so the, the five minute definition is now what drives the code team training manual and uh, people really around the, the world to recognize that once the seizure has gone on even five minutes, uh, there, needs to be have, there needs to be some action taken. It's uh, not appropriate to wait till someone's been seizing for 30 minutes and then start trying to treat it. 
because you're unlikely to be successful at 30 minutes compared with the success you'll have when you use the proper drugs in the proper time frame. So status epilepticus, why, why are we talking about it in a uh, pediatric ICU? It's really more of a pediatric problem than it is an adult problem. Uh, in the United States, the incidence of status epilepticus is 40 per 100,000 adults per year. Uh, in a group of infants age one month to one year, it's more like 147 per 100,000 per year. Uh, and 64 to 85% of the cases of status epilepticus happen in the first five years of life. And 21 to 25%, the largest group of that is in the first year of life. So it really is a pediatric uh, problem. Um, what's interesting, though, is that, as I alluded to before, only uh, about 5% of adults who have epilepsy and 10 to 25% of children with epilepsy will ever have uh, an episode of status epilepticus. So in the ICU, we have a little bit of a, a skewed view of the world. We think everyone who seizes has status epilepticus because those are the ones who come to us. But in actuality, this is just a, a very small percentage of all of the children who have epilepsy and are managed by the neurologist. Uh, and about 70% of children who are less than a year old who are subsequently diagnosed with epilepsy will present in status epilepticus. And this probably tells you one of the reasons why status epilepticus is more common in children, uh, because they're, they're, they're developing their, their condition. They're, they're, we're finding out that they have epilepsy, and they're not on any prophylactic medications when they, when they first start. So you know, later on, when they're having several seizures a day that are very short, um, that, that's happening in the context of a lot of prophylactic medication that their neurologist has been working to, to control. Uh, what types of seizures have a status epilepticus component? All of them. So any kind of seizure, uh, whether it's uh, generalized convulsive, non-convulsive, a simple or a complex partial, all of those, uh, when they go on for longer than five minutes, are status epilepticus. And all of them can be thought to have the morbidity uh, risks that I'm going to talk about today. Um, there is even something called absence status epilepticus. Uh, and myoclonic status epilepticus after hypoxia is often uh, thought to be somewhat of a misnomer. Um, we often have patients who've had a significant hypoxic ischemic event, um, and they will have severe myoclonus. Uh, but on the EEG, they really have sort of an encephalopathic picture um, that doesn't reflect that they're having ongoing seizures. This can be very difficult to manage. It's also a very ominous sign about um, their hypoxic ischemic injury. Seizure pathophysiology. So I want to talk now about how seizures get started and how they get how they prolong themselves. Uh, seizures are uh, start because of an imbalance between excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmission. Uh, the excitatory uh, um, neurotransmitter that is very much implicated in almost all seizures is glutamate. And excitatory glutamate will increase at the site of the seizure focus in the brain at the time of the onset of the seizure. But right after that, GABA uh, is the inhibitory neurotransmitter that kicks in to stop the seizure. So for all of these patients with intractable epilepsy, epilepsy who have many, many seizures a day, uh, they typically go through this cycle many, many times a day. Excitatory uh, glutamate kicks in, GABA shuts off the seizure. Uh, so uh, why is it that the immature brain has more seizures than the mature brain or more tendency to not shut off 
the excitatory neurotransmission. It's thought that um, you know excitatory synapses may mature earlier than inhibitory synapses. And we also know that the infant brain has a very high synaptic density, and that as the brain matures, there's quite a bit of apoptosis as the neurons sort of figure out uh, which, which, which neurons are, are inappropriate pathways and, and which of them are, are not inappropriate pathways and they have apoptosis. So at the beginning, there's quite, a, uh, quite an increased or an elevated synaptic density that goes away over time. And perhaps this is related to why infants have more tendency towards status epilepticus. We also know that uh, GABA receptors definitely change as a seizure becomes prolonged. So um, the uh, GABA receptor that responds to the, uh, the inhibition of GABA um, at the beginning has one morphology, but then uh, as the seizure goes on into uh, you know, five and 10 minutes, um, the uh, GABA receptors change and they're less sensitive to innate GABA, and they're also less sensitive to the benzodiazepines. So this is one reason why uh, we like to use the appropriate dose of the benzodiazepines early, as early as possible when it's necessary for status epilepticus uh, because it's far more likely to be efficacious as the GABA receptors are, you know, are, are responding to it more appropriately. So about the electrophysiology, um, the EEG typically starts with localized epileptic activity and then there'll be some generalized burst of seizure activity followed with in, in between which there is normal EEG. So even the, the patient is continuously seizing, there will be uh, EEG uh, uh, changes that uh, show that there is a burst of seizure activity and then normal EEG and then a burst of seizure activity. Uh, but after about 30 minutes, the, the discharges become continuous. So it just all looks like seizure discharge continually without really normal EEG pattern in between. Uh, eventually, these discharges fragment. And in between the uh, discharges now, there will be, period, be flat or encephalopathic EEG pattern. And uh, the EEG pattern is thought to have a very similar pattern to motor activity. So patients who have generalized convulsive uh, tonic-clonic seizures uh, eventually, as they keep seizing, will go into a non-convulsive status. And it's about at that same time that the EEG pattern changes and there's more of this flatline encephalopathic EEG pattern in between the, the bursts of activity. Uh, there's also two stages of systemic response to status epilepticus that sort of follow along this 30-minute time frame as well. There's a compensatory phase and a decompensatory phase. In the first 30 minutes, um, there's a big catecholamine surge in the body, and that drives increased cardiac output. Uh, there's increased cerebral blood flow and a uh, increased glucose concentration in the brain. So the needs of the brain are very much met, probably overmet, by the amount of glucose and oxygen that is delivered to the brain during the first 30 minutes. But after 30 minutes, and it's not instantaneous, but uh, it starts to happen after about 30 minutes there, we begin to move into the decompensatory phase where uh, there can be failure of cerebral autoregulation and therefore in increased intracranial pressure. Um, there are a number of metabolic problems, including hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, hypo, or sometimes even hyperkalemia if there's quite a bit of rhabdomyolysis. Um, and then there is decreased cardiac output eventually and hypotension. 
Um, and there can also be uh, DIC associated with uh, status epilepticus once uh, it's gone on for some period of time. Fortunately, we rarely get to the point where we see these uh, conditions because uh, generally if a patient has continued to seize uh, beyond the 30-minute time frame, uh, we're either using medications or we're rapidly putting them into a pentobarbital coma to control their seizures and, and, and dealing with the uh, side effects of that. So what uh, injury can seizures themselves cause to the brain? Uh, we know that uh, patients who have gone on to die from status epilepticus, and that was usually you know, many years back, uh, and autopsy specimens were evaluated for those patients, uh, there's a neuronal loss uh, and a reactive gliosis in several areas of the brain. And this is very consistent from patient to patient. It's also very consistent in animal models of status epilepticus, that the neocortex of the brain, the amygdala of the hippocampus, the dorsomedial thalamic nuclei, and the Purkinje cell layer of the cerebellum are all places where you see this, drop, this loss of neurons and an increase in gliosis. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that the animal models reflect this as well. It helps us know that the animal models of status epilepticus are relatively robust. Um, so uh, we know that, um, that, that the pattern is very similar to human epilepsy. Uh, it's also that these neuropathologic changes are localized to the same areas where there's excessive excitatory presynaptic activity. So excessive uh, glutamate in these areas that's uh, creating a lot of excitatory neurotransmission seems to be associated with the places where this neuropathology occurs. And it can also be uh, reproduced by injecting glutamate or aspartate into these areas. But if you inject acetylcholine or GABA, you don't get the same kind of uh, neuronal injury and reactive gliosis. So it was initially thought uh, for many, many years, most of, most of time since people have had seizures and died from status epilepticus, that hypoxia and acidosis and metabolic derangements and even hyperthermia all led to an ischemic neuronal damage, that patients who died from status epilepticus died because uh, they had essentially brain ischemia. Um, but it was actually in 1973 that uh, Dr. Meldrum and colleagues were able to show in a large animal model uh, where they controlled the amount of glucose and oxygen that was being delivered to the brain and they analyzed how much glucose and oxygen was coming from the brain. Uh, they were able to show that uh, the damage to the brain was independent of uh, hypoxia and acidosis. And so they thought at that time that it must be because there was an excessive demand of these continually firing neurons. Um, but we actually know now that it's the glutamate itself which is the bad actor. So uh, it doesn't have anything to do with um, how much glucose or oxygen is being delivered to the brain, but more important, the actual neurotransmitter that uh, is causing this excitatory neurotransmission uh, can cause injury to the brain. Glutamate excitotoxicity is not just something that's studied in status epilepticus injury. It's also something studied in almost every kind of uh, brain injury model that's, uh, that's being studied out there by uh, the basic science researchers. Um, it's basically that excessive glutamate can lead to cell death by uh, necrosis or apoptosis or even both of those mechanisms. Uh, and the primary receptor involved in this is the NMDA receptor. And we know that the NMDA receptor blocker that we frequently use in the ICU is the drug ketamine. It's interesting to think about ketamine being used to protect from 
uh, seizure-induced injury because ketamine is the one drug that we avoid when someone has uh, uh, seizures or a tendency to seize because it is known to also uh, trigger seizures. So uh, obviously it's not the, the answer uh, to um, uh, solving all the problems of uh, of uh, status epilepticus induced brain injury, um, but uh, folks are trying to modulate uh, different drugs to affect the NMDA receptor to try to protect from glutamate mediated excitotoxicity. Basically, glutamate and glycine or even D serine uh, binds to this NMDA receptor and results in a tremendous calcium influx uh, in, through the ionophore of these cells. And the calcium influx is what activates a number of cellular mechanisms uh, leading to cell death. Um, there is some circum relatively circumstantial evidence uh, in humans for the neurotoxicity of seizures. In Canada in the late 1980s, there were some mussels that were poisoned with the glutamate receptor analog domoic acid. Some algae that produced domoic acid were ingested by a number of people who had evidence of neurologic toxicity and seizures. A few subjects were studied with MRI and were found to have hippocampal sclerosis, and one patient was reported to have developed epilepsy from the exposure. There's also been quite a bit of work in the uh, group of patients with complex febrile seizures. So uh, a patient who was three years old who had had a uh, MRI for another reason earlier in life, uh, then had an episode of prolonged febrile uh, status epilepticus uh, and had another MRI after that. And what, what the uh, MRI showed was that there was new hippocampal sclerosis that had not been present at the beginning of the seizure. So this was some, albeit circumstantial evidence, um, that uh, the seizure itself may be causing injury to the hippocampus. Of course, uh, some would argue that perhaps the hippocampal sclerosis came before the seizure, um, so that's why I say it's circumstantial evidence. In families that have more than one child with febrile seizure, it's actually interesting that the duration of their febrile seizure seems to be correlated with the tendency to progress toward epilepsy. So if they survey families who have two kids who have uh, had a febrile seizure, um, if you ask, if you look at the records and see how long each of them seized, the ones who seized for long are more likely to go on and have subsequent epilepsy. Um, and there's also been a number of MRI studies of patients who've had uh, febrile uh, convulsive status epilepticus uh, who had been previously well, where there's clearly uh, an incidence of hippocampal atrophy um, after a prolonged complex febrile seizure. Uh, more direct human evidence of the neurotoxicity of seizures comes from uh, the biomarker field. So uh, the biomarker for um, neuronal injury is enolase, and something called neuron-specific enolase uh, is definitely elevated in patients who have non-convulsive status epilepticus who did not have any prior uh, brain injury uh, or coexisting brain injury. So uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, marker that there has been neurons that have been directly been damaged by the non-convulsive status epilepticus. So do prolonged seizures, that we've talked about them causing damage to the brain, can they actually cause epilepsy? Um, this has been studied in the febrile convulsive status epilepticus uh, population uh, in the sort of six-month to five-year-old range. It's actually interesting that there's a low incidence of neurologic deficits or cognitive impairment. You know, these children are, uh, you know, relatively normal, but there is a risk of subsequent epilepsy, uh, which has been reported as high as 21% in this group. Now, remember, we're not talking about all patients with febrile seizure. We're talking about patients who've had febrile convulsive status epilepticus, so that's a much smaller group. 
But the risk of subsequent epilepsy is thought to be as much as 21%. Most of these end up being complex partial seizures. And when you actually do the uh, MRI on these patients, there is evidence that they may have mesial temporal sclerosis in the hippocampus. And this uh, incidence of um, uh, seizure, seizure, uh, epilepsy developing from having had a seizure uh, seems to be somewhat dependent on the duration of the initial febrile seizure. Uh, one, there's it's quite a mystery to the neurologist as to how prolonged seizures might initiate epilepsy. Um, the biggest thing that's hard to explain is that sometimes there's a, pro, a very long time delay between the initial seizure and then the subsequent development of epilepsy. Um, and there's been a number of mechanisms that have been proposed. Uh, if you're interested, there's a New England Journal article by Chang and Lowenstein from 2003 where they propose several different mechanisms, including, including sprouting of new neurons um, that, are, that are thought to be inner neurons uh, that allow for uh, new uh, pathways to develop that, that, would, that might ultimately lead towards uh, an, uh, an epileptic condition. Uh, but that's uh, you know, certainly something that uh, folks are very interested in, whether uh, seizures can uh, cause epilepsy, not just result from epilepsy. Pharmacotherapy for status epilepticus. So I want to talk now about how drugs work to halt status epilepticus. And first we'll talk about the first line agent, which, is the, which are the benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines work through receptor-mediated enhancement of the GABA-A inhibitory transmission. So basically they increase chloride conductance through the GABA receptors, and by doing that, they decrease neuronal excitability. Sometimes we have patients who have refractory status epilepticus, and they come to the ICU for infusions of benzodiazepines, uh, continuous infusions of benzodiazepines, to drive their benzodiazepine levels up fairly high. At these higher concentrations, uh, benzodiazepines are thought to work more through a phenytoin-like mechanism, whereby they uh, limit the sustained repetitive neuronal firing by prolonging the rate of recovery of voltage-activated sodium channels. So barbiturates work essentially through the same mechanism that the benzodiazepines do. Uh, they bind to the GABA receptor and they amplify the actions of GABA by extending this chloride channel opening and causing more chloride conductance through the GABA receptor. And then phenytoin works, as we talked about just a minute ago, through the sodium channels. Um, it's phenytoin blocks frequency, use, and voltage-dependent neuronal sodium channels, so all three different types, and it slows their rate of recovery, and therefore it limits the repetitive firing of action potentials. Now, in general, uh, for general principles of the treatment of status epilepticus, uh, drugs which prevent seizures are often not efficacious for stopping a status epilepticus. So a patient may be on five different anti-epileptic drugs, none of which are going to be efficacious if they're going on to seize for you know, longer than five, three to five minutes. Um, but for the medications where they are used prophylactically and also used in um, and also used in the management of status epilepticus, it often requires more drug to abort status epilepticus than it does to prevent it. So a patient may be on Ativan, for example, uh, lorazepam, uh, and may be receiving a very low dose of this every six hours. 
but if that patient goes into status epilepticus, they will then require 0.1 milligrams per kilogram uh, of benzodiazepine to stop their status epilepticus. And so it's, it's often likely that there's more drug required to stop status than, than just to prevent it from happening. Uh, and the longer the duration of status epilepticus, uh, the less efficacious the drugs are and the more drug that's required to abort the status epilepticus. And this is even true of, uh, of phenytoin. Um, so we'll talk in a minute about uh, mechanisms of uh, the phenytoin becoming less efficacious as the seizure goes on. So in general, for all the drugs that we use, um, the earlier and more appropriately they can be used, the better. So how do we know about which drugs uh, are efficacious earlier or later in a seizure and how can we study that effectively? Obviously it's not something that can be studied in humans very easily. But we do have a couple of animal models of status epilepticus that are used by researchers. Uh, the, the first was developed uh, back in the 1980s. And it's essentially a drug-induced seizure model where lithium and pilocarpine are combined to induce seizures in uh, small animals. And the, one of the interesting papers uh, in this area uh, that was uh, done in 1988 was uh, by Drs. Walton and Tryman, where they tried to give diazepam to animals when the EEG was showing discrete seizures. And they noticed that if they gave it that early, the, the status epilepticus could be aborted. But if the EEG had progressed onward to the period of continuous waxing and waning with no uh, normal EEG in between, then the diazepam was far less efficacious. If they gave the diazepam late, they were able to reduce the amplitude of the spikes, but not the frequency or the morphology of the spikes. So this was some of the first evidence that uh, as a seizure went on, uh, it would become less, uh, would become more resistant to the benzodiazepine treatment. But there are obviously some folks who think that a, a drug-induced model of seizure activity uh, it may not be a good one in that the drugs may be having some other effect besides starting seizures. So uh, in the 90s, uh, uh, what's called the intermittent perforant path stimulation model of status epilepticus was developed out at UCLA. And this is basically using electrical impulses to stimulate part of the brain and start continuous seizures. Uh, and in this model, diazepam and phenytoin could prevent status epilepticus at low doses but injecting them 40 or 70 minutes into a seizure was increasingly less efficacious. Uh, and they noticed that resistance to phenytoin required a longer duration of seizure than resistance to uh, diazepam. And the mechanisms of decreasing benzodiazepine effic efficacy during status epilepticus are thought to be related to plastic changes of the benzodiazepine receptor. So it's actually been you know, studied in uh, tissue culture, you can uh, look at the receptor and can tell that it's had some uh, definite changes to its morphology. Uh, there seems to be a reduced efficacy of GABA in terms of opening the chloride channels after, uh, the, after prolonged status epilepticus and diminished driving force for GABA receptor currents. Um, there's also thought to be an inversion of this chloride equilibrium because the cells are continuously depolarized. Uh, and that may lead to uh, resistance to benzodiazepines as well. But there's also phenytoin failure during status epilepticus, and this is thought to be related to long-term potentiation of excitatory synapses in the dentate gyrus, 
Um, and there also is thought to be uh, translocation and phosphorylation of something called calmodulin kinase 2, which enhances glutamate release even when the voltage-gated sodium channels are blocked. So uh, even with phenytoin, it's important that the drug is used early and uh, in its appropriate doses, uh, because later on it may not be as efficacious. Question and answer. Remember the questions that came up. When does a single seizure or a cluster of seizures become status epilepticus, and why does a particular time course matter? Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. I think you know now that uh, seizures are thought to be, once they've gone on for five minutes or uh, intermittently with incomplete recovery of consciousness over a five-minute period, uh, a patient is thought to have status epilepticus. And I think you know why the time course uh, matters for a, a number of different reasons. What's the evidence that seizures without hypoxia or acidosis cause damage to the brain or other parts of the body? Uh, and do certain types of seizures cause more damage than others? Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. I think it's clear that uh, all the different types of status epilepticus have a tendency to cause uh, injury to the brain, uh, and uh, hypoxia and acidosis have very little to do with the resulting injury that can happen when status epilepticus goes on for too long. Uh, and we know now that uh, the benzodiazepines and phosphenatoin are both uh, have a tendency to, uh, to there, there, there's resistance that develops to the use of both of those as a seizure becomes prolonged. Um, and so they're most likely to be efficacious as early as possible uh, along the appropriate time course during, during the seizure. And we know why that uh, changes over time. I want to go through a few take-home reminders uh, just to sum up what I want you to take from this talk. Uh, it's very important to follow the algorithm or your own algorithm as much uh, to provide as much medication as needed to halt status epilepticus in a timely fashion. We know that benzodiazepines work best early in the seizure. Delaying them or underdosing them because we're trying to prevent respiratory depression or we think a patient is going to stop seizing on their own, uh, can only compound uh, the morbidity because if the drugs are used in small doses or not used at the appropriate time frame, you can imagine that more drug will have to be used later to try to make up for that. And that more drug that may not stop the seizures will probably cause more respiratory depression and require intubation. And the intubation will be longer because the patient is more sedated from the higher doses of drugs. There is a low morbidity to inducing respiratory depression. It's not something that we should all be scared of. We know plenty of patients who come to our ICU after being intubated during status epilepticus, they get extubated very soon thereafter. Uh, and, but there is a very high morbidity to letting the seizures uh, continue. And so I encourage you to uh, use the drugs um, at their appropriate doses at the appropriate time during the seizure for all of the reasons that I've talked about today. All right, thank you very much. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.